welcome to yet another edition of the International Intrigue audio newsletter. This is where we read to you our two main stories so you can multitask and go about your busy days. Lately, we're seeing the US-China relationship increasingly called a Cold War 2.0. So this week we ask, what does Cold War 2.0 really mean? And does it matter? So without further ado, on to the first part of our story. What does Cold War 2.0 even mean? To answer that question, we must look deep inside ourselves. But who has the time for that? Instead, we'll just look at the OG Cold War and what folks mean when they compare the two. We do love us a bit of TLDR history. Cold War 1.0 was a decades-long struggle for global influence between the US and Soviet Union and their allies. It started in the aftermath of World War II in 1947 and ended in dramatic fashion with the iconic fall of the Berlin Wall slash unification of West and East Germany. It was also an ideological struggle at its core between individualism and collectivism, aka capitalism and socialism, as a model for the rest of the world. The war's end triggered galaxy brains like Francis Fukuyama to announce the so-called end of history, because the Soviet Union's collapse meant that there was no longer any real competition to liberal democracy and the market economy. Wow, wow. Fukuyama has since postponed the end of history. Cold War 1.0 was not a conventional battle fought directly between the US and Soviet Union. Instead, they fought proxy wars like the Korea and Vietnam Wars, all the while building up their respective nuclear and conventional weapons arsenals to comical, but actually very unfunny, levels. And in a newsletter, you'll see a really uh, incredible graph showing how the US and Russian nuclear arsenals evolved over the course of the Cold War. On top of that, there was no shortage of near misses. It's truly a miracle we're all still here. Other hallmark features of Cold War 1.0 included military brinkmanship, psychological warfare, propaganda campaigns and disinformation operations, espionage, which is still providing endless cloak and dagger fodder to spy novelists, trade embargoes and sanctions, fierce sporting rivalries, sometimes leading to great films, and the OG space race. Elon is so derivative. Which of those features exist between the US and China today? 1. Ideology These days, China is busy trying to export its strongly state-controlled model of growth to developing countries, particularly Africa, as an alternative to the US's supposed chaotic capitalist model. Traditional Leninist-style socialism has leveled up into socialism with Chinese characteristics. Learning lessons from the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, has introduced political and economic reforms that have allowed China to integrate with the international system. Since the 1980s, Chinese socialism as a national ideology hasn't intruded too much into the lives of its citizens, although I do remember having to wear little red scarves to school. No scarf, no entry to school. That was until President Xi Jinping decided to revive a more Maoist, personality-cult, red-book-waving version of socialism. 2. Military build-up 
The current US-China military buildup is, shall we say, worrying. The US government now sees China as a near-peer competitor, which is military speak for they're getting too bloody close for comfort. China is challenging the US in multiple areas. China's navy and air force are now the largest in the Indo-Pacific region. China is also increasing its arsenal of scarily accurate rocket systems at all ranges, diversifying its already impressive nuclear arsenal and eroding the edge that the US had in space, despite the US Space Force. We see you smirking. Three, handbags at five paces diplomacy. China's style of diplomacy is less panda friendship and much more wolf warrior. Long gone are the days of Chairman Deng's bide our time and hide our strength strategy. China, under Xi, has decided it's had enough of pretending it can't whoop ass. Instead, China has gone full honey badger, not caring how the US and critics perceive it. China runs influence operations in places like Taiwan, Australia and Central Asian countries, and simultaneously runs cyber offensives to gain control of those countries' domestic politics. You know, all the things the Soviets used to do. 4. Internal control Since President Xi came to power, the CCP's internal policy debate mechanisms have all but disappeared. The CCP has increasingly tightened its grip over foreign media, rule of law, political dissent, and even organised religion. China critics love to pick out Orwellian examples of state control, and lately Xi has obliged them by restricting gaming hours for teens and banning effeminate-looking men from appearing on Chinese TV. The CCP is starting to reach into the lives of citizens like it did once under Mao, or like the Soviet Communist Party did under most of its controlling leaders. And finally, economic control. Increasingly, China is also challenging the US-centric monetary system through its central bank digital currency. As we've written before, China is doing this to gain economic control, avoid sanctions linked to the USD, and gain economic leverage over other countries with its non-USD global pay systems. Though this doesn't have a direct analogy to Soviet times, it is yet another cold battlefront between the US and China. So, if those are the similarities between the US-Soviet and US-China competition, what are the differences? Why the US-China rivalry is different. Two words, globalization and technology. One, globalization. It's obvious that the interconnected nature of the modern world is starkly different to an era when an empire two and a half the size of the US was, quite literally, walled off from the rest of the world. But because anyone who was in high school after about 1995 has had globalization causes and effects drilled into them ad nauseum, I'll save you the PTSD of rehashing all that. Instead, I'll focus on what I think is the most important difference between Cold War 1.0 and Cold War 2.0. 2. Technology Both the Soviet and Chinese governments aim to exert a high level of control over their populations, but the two regimes have had very different ways of achieving this. 
The biggest difference is the rapid technological advancement made since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Technology in the latter half of the 20th century didn't allow for the total control of people at all times. That could only be approximated by using physical tools like borders, secret police, identification papers, etc. But those methods were expensive, and costs expanded with the size of the state. In contrast, modern China is building their technological equivalents of those physical tools, real ID via smartphones, real-time censorship of social media and messaging apps, ubiquitous facial recognition, and more. These are the modern CCP's ways of perfecting what the Soviets tried to achieve. In my view, understanding technology as the key difference is crucial. Never before has it been possible to know what everyone is doing at all times, or process that information within an actionable time frame, or break the link between increasing marginal costs and the expansion of surveillance. And in the newsletter, we have a quote from Ben Thompson, which says, the critical factor that makes tech companies unique is the zero marginal cost nature of software. Venture capitalists fund tech companies are characterized by a zero marginal cost component that allows for uncapped returns on investment. Now, replace venture capitalists with state and tech companies with state-owned surveillance companies and you start to grasp the difference. Consider that each additional border crossing for the Soviets required the added fixed expense of more guards. But once the modern CCP develops and rolls out a facial recognition system, Scanning 100,000 people per day is more or less as expensive as scanning 10 billion people a day. The rapid development of computing processing power, the internet and AI make it almost certain that China would successfully develop a cost-efficient or seeing panopticon. 3. Modern China has learned from Soviet mistakes. Or have they? I lied. There's a third word. History. The modern CCP is hell-bent on not repeating the mistakes of the Soviet Union. In fact, this was so front of mind for CCP officials that I barely attended a meeting in China where, quote-unquote, we have studied the USSR deeply, wasn't dropped into conversation to remind me that, this time, the West wouldn't have it so easy. But make no mistake, the modern CCP was born in the Stalinist era and still has Soviet DNA. According to Arthur Waldron, who is a Lauder Professor of IR at the University of Pennsylvania, today's official China believes that nothing deep or fundamental was wrong with the Soviet Union, even in the late 1980s. According to the Chinese official narrative, the failure of the Soviet regime to continue is not attributable to a broad systemic phenomenon, but rather to a very specific failure of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Why do we insist on framing the US-China relationship as a Cold War 2.0? In some ways, whether or not we're in a Cold War 2.0 really doesn't matter. We know we're entering an extended period of competition between two superpowers. So why have governments, including the Chinese government, which uses the term Cold War more than all other governments combined, the media and analysts, choose to sell us the Cold War 2.0 framing? 1. A shorthand to understand the change in geopolitical dynamics. The US and China has each openly called the other a so-called strategic competitor, which is diplo-speak for adversary, and any pretense that China will liberalise is long gone. 
What's the most recent adversarial contest between superpowers? The Cold War. So Cold War 2.0 does its job of communicating the sharp change in relationship nicely. Two, to remind us of the threat that belligerent superpowers pose to us all. I'm going to quote extensively from a recent podcast with the famous and somewhat controversial historian, Niall Ferguson. Niall said, We haven't had a big war in a while. The US and China are doing all the things that you would do as two superpowers if you were going to have a really big war in the next 10 years, quarreling about multiple issues, underestimating each other's capabilities. I see the probability of a significant conflict as quite high, and what history tells us is that stuff really does kill people. Cold War 2.0 framing gets that message across loud and clear, but it's also overly simplistic. Nile went on to say, We often think of the Cold War as a cold nuclear war, where nuclear weapons meant Armageddon or peace. The reality is much more nuanced. A limited nuclear war is something that will happen at some point. The surprising thing is that it hasn't happened yet. Henry Kissinger said in the 1960s that limited nuclear war was essential for the US to triumph over the Soviet Union because the US didn't have a great prospect of winning a conventional war. Indeed, NATO planned to stop a Soviet invasion of Europe through tactical battlefield nuclear strikes. So perhaps thinking about Taiwan, which is the obvious potential flashpoint between the US and China, in Cold War terms, is helpful. Understanding that a battlefield nuke might be used in Asia before the decade is out ought to give even the most warmongering China critic pause for thought. 3. Laziness Most of us in the knowledge industry will, if we're being honest, identify with a horror of being required to really think about things. Speaking for myself, it's exhausting, and I'm exhausted. It's far easier to dust off a classic framework from the past, chime in the facts of the present to fit, and be down in the pub in time for knockoffs, than it is to actually sit down and come up with novel ways of understanding the world. I give you this attempt to revive the Cold War 1.0 era domino theory in 2021. To be fair, the main sources of the this is a Cold War 2.0 messaging, governments and the media, work with time constraints that make deep analysis difficult. But based on my experience in those worlds, I think a lot of the Cold War 2.0 messaging is laziness. It is a fact that human bureaucracies tend to incentivize not reinventing the wheel. Remember, nothing is inevitable. Ultimately, quibbles about whether the US-China relationship is or isn't a Cold War 2.0 mostly boil down to political douchebaggery and Twitter f-wittery. There is undoubted value in communicating the essence of the dynamic crisply, but only if the context is taken as understood. The problem is that, as with so many political or advertising slogans, reducing something infinitely complex to a few words strips it of all meaning. Reading the news these days definitely makes me believe that a Cold War is inevitable, but I wonder how much framing of the US-China relationship in those terms determines how it develops. Put more simply, does calling the US and China relationship Cold War 2.0 make it more likely that it will become so? Based on how close Cold War 1.0 came to ending the world, we should all fervently hope not.
that's it for another week. We hope you enjoyed this story on the US-China Cold War 2.0. Let us know what you thought, because we always welcome your feedback. Otherwise, you can always get in touch with us by replying to the newsletter or following the link to the subscription in this podcast, or tweeting us at intintrigue, that's I-N-T, intrigue. And that's it. Until next week.